You know, Psalm 133.1 says, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And the same is true of a church. How good and how pleasant it is for the church to dwell together in unity. Trust me, that is not always the case in many churches. But the converse is also true. How miserable it is when churches, where the body of Christ in a church, the local church, is openly hostile to one another, or even there might be undercurrents. Below the surface, always these undercurrents below the surface that one day rise up, unbeknownst to many, and cause a split of a church or cause problems in the church. That's what we have to be careful of. I don't know if I told you this or not before, but there was a pastor I heard who um, used to be a policeman in Texas. And uh, this policeman or this pastor told at the time, when as a policeman, he went to the worst fight he'd ever seen in his career as a policeman. He was called out one night, given a call to go to a certain location. There's a, there's a huge fight taking place. You need to go there and take care of this. He went there. It was in the parking lot of a Pentecostal church. It was Wednesday night. They were having their prayer meeting. You know what prayer meetings can lead to, right? It led to a business meeting in this case. And after the business meeting, well, during the business meeting, people started to argue and fight with each other, argue about the issues involved that they were discussing. And they got so mad that a fight broke out, literally a fist fight. This actually happened in the church between the members of the church. And it carried out into the parking lot outside of the church. And so when the policeman uh, pulled up, this is what he saw taking place. It was all a result of this business meeting. Now, that's a openly hostile situation in a church. Kind of unusual, but can you imagine the reaction of the community to that? What they would think about that? A church infighting taking place outside of the church. And then there are the undercurrents, and that's what we really have to be careful of. Undercurrents in a church. Things going under the surface that you don't see. All we see is the smiling faces in the pews or in the, in the chairs or the nice comfortable chairs that we have here. You see smiling faces, but underneath there's something going on that you don't always see. And, you know, we're, we're a growing church right now, and only God knows what's going to happen with that. We don't know the future. As I told Mike, I mean, God may, you know, if God wants us to be here and to function as a church, he's going to keep us here. And if, if he's not happy with what he sees and shuts us down, that's his business. But we don't know the future. But I tell you one thing, we have to be careful of, of what is going on in our church always. Nothing's going on right now that I know of, by the way. There may be. See, I don't know. <laughs> There may be something going on. But I came from a church where there were things like secret meetings taking place. And I was a deacon at that church. And they, they called a, found out later on through another source, through the pastor of that church, that there was, he asked me, did you know there's a secret deacon's meeting taking place on Friday night? I said, no, I'm a deacon and nobody told me about it. It's a secret to me. The other deacons knew about it. They were going to meet secretly in, the, in somebody's house. And there was lies and accusations taking place in that church and hurtful comments, lies about the pastor, ultimately the ouster of the pastor. And as I said before, that pastor is my present pastor, Pastor Mike. All that took place in that church, undercurrents. That is not God's plan for the church, for the local body of Christ. That is not God's plan at all. That, God wants harmony in the church. That's what he wants. But when you have all these people and we have more people coming into our church, more visitors, more people joining. When you have all that, you have more potential for, for problems in the church. Tonight we're going to look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Paul's exhortation to unity in the church. And uh, 
The, the passage here reminds me, it's a good reminder for us, we need to think about this periodically in our church, having, maintaining unity in a church. It reminds me of Romans 15, 6, where it says that with one mind and with one mouth, we may glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is to be unified as they to get together, glorify, glorify God. And bickering and criticizing and gossiping in the church will not achieve that goal and the goal is always to glorify God. Now, as Mike has talked many times in Ephesians, the first three chapters of Ephesians talk about doctrinal issues. He's laid a strong foundation, Paul has, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In the next three chapters, verses, chapters 4 through 6, he, atur- he turns to the, the, the practice of that doctrine. And as you know, that's always Paul's pattern, lay down doctrinal issues first. And then he says, all right, now let's go to the practice. Practice what has been taught here. And the theme of this section, Ephesians 4, 1 and 3, is this. The church is to maintain the unity and practice which Christ has brought about positionally. The church is to maintain the unity and practice which Christ has brought about positionally. Let's read Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. And it says there, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You'll notice, first of all, that Paul was in difficult circumstances. It says he was a prisoner. He was under house arrest. He was guarded by uh, someone, a a guard, a a Roman soldier. Uh, You'll see that in Acts. Uh, He wrote the letter to the Ephesians from Rome, and Paul says here, I am a prisoner of the Lord. That's interesting. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say I'm a political prisoner. He doesn't say I'm a victim of the Jews and their accusations against me. But he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And then in chapter 6 of the same book, Ephesians, verse 20, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm in chains for the gospel's sake. Paul was a prisoner of Christ. Now, our tendency is in, in difficult circumstances is to be frustrated by them. We're in a difficult circumstance in our life. Our tendency is to be frustrated by them or to, feel, or to be angry because of the circumstances we're in or to feel sorry for ourselves. But Paul here shows the right way to respond to circumstances. He shows no concern for himself whatsoever in this. He's only concerned for the church. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, and I've got instructions for the church. not even thinking about himself at all. To take it even a step further... The literal rendering of that phrase where Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord, is I'm a prisoner in the Lord, actually. Prisoner in the Lord, indicating Paul's connection or his union with Christ. He's united with Christ. And it was this union with Christ that caused Paul to obey the Lord's call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he goes out and is obedient to the call to be a preacher to the Gentiles, a teacher, an apostle to the Gentiles. He does that, and in that obedience... He, ends up, he winds up in prison because he's, he's obeying God and he gets persecuted for it. So he's obedient. He's a prisoner. And because he is obedient, he can exhort the Ephesians to obey God as well in the matter of unity. See, Paul loved the church. Paul suffered for the church. And he knew it was absolutely essential to have unity in the church. He's loyal to, to Christ. And this passion that he has for Christ gives him the right to speak this way. He's highly respected as an apostle. 
and he's an, he talks about being an apostle, a prisoner, and all these things, and he's got great respect from the believers. He's well known to the believers, and so he writes to them, and he gives them this exhortation, and this exhortation carries tremendous weight because it came from the apostle Paul. I said that the theme of this, of this section is that the church is to maintain unity uh, in practice, to maintain the unity in practice which Christ has brought about positionally. Paul is exhorting the church to unity. And tonight, we want to see three ways by which we can obey Paul's exhortation to unity. Three ways to obey the exhortation to unity. First of all, in verse 1, we must be true to our calling. We must be true to our calling. Paul says there, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The therefore is a transitional word, as always, pointing back to the uh, first three chapters. And in light of the doctrinal teaching, Paul says, now therefore, in light of what we've just discussed, he says, I want to make a plea with you to follow that up with practice. He says, I implore you to do this. I exhort you to do this. In other words, this is an authoritative word from Paul. It's an urgent word from Paul. He's making a plea for the church to be unified. It's, it's a passionate conviction he wishes to communicate to the people. Not a, it's not a suggestion for you to, to think about. It's not an option to, to choose if you so desire, but he's earnestly urging us to be in unity as uh, uh, the Ephesians here as a church. And so he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And you know what the word walk has to do with. It has to do with conduct or lifestyle. It's how a person lives. It's, it's how, you, how you conduct your life. You walk a certain way. You live a certain way. It describes the lifestyle of a person before he came to Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is how it was before you came to Christ. Before you came to Christ, chapter 2, verse 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead. In which you formerly walked. There's the word walk. You used to live this way in your sins. You used to sin and commit trespasses against God, rebel against God. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we all too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so Paul says, before you were saved, you walked this way, you lived this way, you were spiritually dead. Think back, back to your pre-conversion days, don't think too long about it, but... Remember, back then you were spiritually dead, like a physical corpse that couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't turn, no spiritual life in you at all. You couldn't, uh, a dead man can't uh, become alive on his own. You had no longing after Christ in those days. You didn't care about God. You had no interest in spiritual things at all. You had no appetite for the word of God. You had no desire to come to church and hear the people of God, uh, or to fellowship with the people of God. No need for that. No wish to be influenced by the gospel at all why because you were spiritually dead and and you were not able to come to know to know christ unless god called you to himself you were controlled by your sins controlled by the pull of the world controlled by the power of satan and your primary concern was what to please yourself right you only cared about yourself and nobody else that's a description of a person before they came to know christ but the word walk not only describes a person's lifestyle before he was saved but also after he comes to know Christ. Paul uses the term often, as Mike has pointed out to us in Ephesians. Look at, his, uh, look at Ephesians 4.17. He says, so 
This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Don't walk like you used to. Don't live like you used to, like all the other people are living out there. Don't be that way anymore. Chapter 5, verse 2. He says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for us. We're to love each other, he says. We're to live that way. Chapter 5, verse 8. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We were in darkness at one time, in the darkness of of this world, in darkness of sin. But now, he says, we're light. We're light to the world. So your life should reflect that difference, that you're in Christ. It should be obvious to others that you are now different than you were. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. He says, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you live because your testimony is on the line. People are watching you at work. They're watching you in your neighborhood and, and where you go in life. And, and you're to reflect the difference in Christ as the Holy Spirit works in you. And so these two terms, are this term is used of those before, you were saved, before they were saved and also afterwards. And Paul says that we are to walk in a manner Worthy. It's interesting. That word interesting, uh, worthy is interesting in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Worthy. We talk about being unworthy all the time. But Paul says, walk worthy of the calling. The word worthy means to balance the scales, to make both sides of the scales equal. Uh, one side of the scale must be equivalent to the other side of the scale. And if he, in, in this case, the one side of the scale is doctrine. The other side of the scale is practice. In other words, your practice must equal your doctrine, must line up with your doctrine. God says, live this way. Okay, we must live this way. And so there's, there's this uh, worthiness uh, he talks about here. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. The, past, the pastor from England, the late pastor from England says, the apostle Paul is beseeching them and exhorting them always to give equal weight in their lives to doctrine and practice. Both are necessary. They must not put all the weight on doctrine and none on practice, nor all the weight on practice, and just a little, if any at all, on doctrine. To do so, he says, produces an imbalance and lopsidedness. The Ephesians must take great pains to see that the scales are perfectly balanced, doctrine and practice. And this is where most of us go wrong. We study the first, you know, we like theology in our church, right? We're, we're into theology. We have a systematic theology class on Sunday afternoon even. And so we're into that here. But because of our interest in theology, we, we can read the first three chapters of Ephesians and, talk and, and learn about election, and we can learn about salvation and the Holy Spirit and all these doctrines. Then we get to the last three chapters of Ephesians, 4 to 6, and it talks about living, holy living, living for God, and we don't make the connection because we're, we're, we're looking at theology only because that's what we do here, right? And we don't really make the connection with how it affects our lives at all. That's the one thing we want to avoid. Or, or we do this. We look at the first three chapters of Ephesians and we see all that doctrine, predestination and election and, and all this stuff, and we think, man, we're not interested. That's boring. We want entertainment. So we go to the next three chapters of Ephesians, chapter 4 to 6, and we concentrate on the living, the application. We're only inter- interested in application nothing else. But both of those ways are thinking are wrong. Either way is wrong. We end up with either a cold heart or even heresy if we only practice, follow one of those courses. Here's what we need to do. We must learn the doctrines of God's word 
for the purpose of putting them into practice. We learn the doctrines of God's word, learn theology, so we can put it into practice in our life and live it out. And so our lifestyle will then line up with our beliefs. In other words, we must be doers of the word, as James says, and not hearers only. Doers of the word. And so our conduct must match up with our calling, called to salvation. Let's live that way now. Philippians 1.27. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. We call ourselves Christians. Now let's live like we actually are Christians. He speaks of our calling also in chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You often wonder about your calling. You wonder to yourself, how, what, have I, what is my calling in life? What is it God wants me to do in life? What is God's will for me to do? We, we, we term it that way. What, what is it I am to do? But here, calling is a sovereign act of God whereby he, he literally uh, 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 brings us to himself. He invites us to come to himself. That's the calling he's talking about here, the sovereign call to salvation, to be saved. It's also known in theology, for those of you that go to the classes, the effectual call. In other words, the, the call when God calls a person to salvation and truly does that, it is an effective call. He will bring that person to himself and will save him by his grace. It's going to happen. So we who know the Lord have been called by him to salvation. We hear the gospel preached by somebody or several somebodies along the way, and God opens our heart as he did Lydia and Acts, and he brings us to himself. And so we have this calling as believers to salvation. But at the same time, we are called to be part of a body, the body of Christ, the, the, the church. Verse 4 says there is one body here, and this is what we've been called to. God has called him to, to himself. He saved us by his grace, but he's called us to be a part of the body of Christ. And the church is not a collection of individuals doing their own thing, doing whatever they want to, coming up with their own agenda. Everybody has a plan that they want to follow. It's, it's never that. It is a body that's together, and its head is Christ. And we're together as a team. We're a family. We call, often say we talk about our church family, and that's true. It's a very, very descriptive way of putting it. We are a church family. We're together in this thing, serving together. So Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So in other words, let your conduct match your calling. We've been called to salvation. We've been called into union with Christ and union in his body. Now he says, live up to that calling. Be true to your calling. And if we're not true to that calling, we're going to be hypocritical. And we're never going to have the unity in the church that God wants. So let me ask you a question. Are you true to your calling? Do you, does your doctor, your practice... Your lifestyle, does your lifestyle line up with the doctrine that you know? You've been saved by the grace of God. Does your life line up with that? Are you walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called? In other words, is your behavior squaring up with the truth of the word of God? That's something you need to ask yourself. So the Apostle Paul exhorts us to unity by saying we must be true to our calling. There's a second way in which Paul exhorts us to unity. He says... In effect, in verse 2, we must display unselfish attitudes. We must display unselfish attitudes. Think about this. A selfish church is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? What kind of a church would it be to have a selfish church? I've seen people this very week and last week do things that are just 
unselfish and I'm in this church and I'm, I'm thinking wow this is such a wonderful thing I don't want to point anybody out but I want to thank Brad for some of the things he's done to help people out lately quite honestly appreciate that and I've seen people in this church do this kind of thing so we must display unselfish attitudes you know I don't know how many times I heard Mike quote Philippians 2 3 do nothing from selfishness do nothing from selfishness and, and that's how we should be uh, we have to we have to put away any selfishness and there are four attitudes that we must have and display and to others in order to promote the unity in this church four attitudes number one humility verse two with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love humility now if you'll notice the first phrase actually couples two ideas together it says with humility and gentleness um, those are closely related terms. He starts with, uh, and by the way, he says, with all humility. You wonder why it says all humility and gentleness? It's because we are to exercise humility and gentleness to the highest degree possible, the greatest extent possible. Uh, we're to go overboard on these, on these things, humility and gentleness. And, and in fact, we must go overboard on these, on these ideas, the practice of humility and gentleness. The word translated humility is literally lowliness of mind. Think about that for a minute. <clears throat> Paul says to be lowly in mind, to think lowly of yourself. Now, we don't, you know, we don't like that in our American society because in American society, as Mike Liptak has testified in, in the school system, we're taught to think highly of ourselves. We're taught to, think, to have a self-esteem. And, and, but this word means to have voluntary submission and, and be unselfish in what we do. In Philippians 2, 3, the, the word humility is used in contrast to self-seeking. I'm not seeking things for myself. I'm looking out for the needs of others. And in 1 Peter 5, 5, humility is contrasted with pride. Now, humility is not considered a virtue by the world. Not at all. You might hear some people, uh, some athletes, I think of, who make, make a show of humility, but really it's kind of a false humility. But the, because the world promotes pride. People are expected, as I said, in our American culture, we're, we're taught to have a high opinion of ourselves, right? We're, we're taught to have self-esteem. We're taught to feel good about ourselves, all these things. And yet, God says, now be lowly in mind. Be, be humble. The last thing you ever hear about is true humility. Again, Philippians 2, 3. The scripture says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Humility of mind. The verse goes on to say, regard one another as more important than yourselves. With the humility of mind, regard one another more important as, than yourselves. Now, we don't like that, right? We want to be first in line. We want, to, we want our first uh, dibs at something. But God says, no, regard one another more as, as more important than yourselves. You know, did you know that the word humility did not even exist before New Testament times? It, it didn't even exist. In fact, later on, uh, neither Romans or Greeks even had the word humility in their vocabulary. Later on, one Greek philosopher, when they had the word, said he, listed, he had a list of, of values to be not commended among people, and the first value not to be commended was humility. The last thing he said, that philosopher said, that you want is humility in your life. Pride was what marked their attitude, not humility. And that's what the world thinks of the idea. They don't think much of the idea at all. But, you know, you'll hear people say, I'm not going to be a doormat for somebody. 
But God says to us believers to be lowly in mind. Now, Paul, on the other hand, contrasted to the world, says in Acts 20, verses 18 and 19, he says, he said to the Ephesian elders, he was addressing the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and he says, you yourselves know how I was with you the whole time, Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility. Paul says, I serve the Lord with all humility. In other words, Paul was an example of humility. He practiced it in daily living. He lived it. He, he talks about shedding tears and crying over people and he talks another another verse about being the off-scouring of all the scum of all things. He says, the, I think us apostles are last of all, being the scum of all things. And so Paul practiced this. And now what he practiced in his life, he preaches to the Ephesians. He says, I want you to exercise humility. Paul also points us to the greatest act of humility ever in the history of the world. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says that Christ emptying himself. <clears throat> taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. That alone in itself, coming from heaven's glory to be made in the likeness of men, what a come down. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, it says. Christ, think about those words, Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is what marked our Savior. Humility marked Christ. Humility is what Mark should mark his followers as well. This attitude of humility is absolutely essential to the foundation of, of the church. It's foundational in the church. It should be in a church. It's basic to a church. If we're filled with pride and arrogance, we're going to demand our own way. We're going to want what we want in the church. We're going to promote our own opinions. We're going to be interested in what we want, not what Christ wants in the church. On the other hand, if we had an attitude of humility, we're going to be like-minded with each one another. And there was, over in 3 John, there was Diotrephes who loved to, it says Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence in the church. That's what he loved. He wanted preeminence. He wanted the priority. He wanted to be the man in the church. He wanted to lead the church. But we don't want to be like that. We want to be humble, as God says to be here. If we could only see ourselves as God does, we can only see ourselves as God does. We would be humble before him. So Paul admonishes us to be lowly in mind. That is the first attitude toward humility. The second attitude Paul mentions is gentleness. It's all humility in verse 2 of chapter 4 and gentleness. Gentleness is meekness. It is showing a consideration for other people. It's a willingness to waive your own rights. Instead of saying, no, that's my right. I'm gonna, I've got a right to do that. You waive it in order to show consideration for someone else. It's not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not timidity. The word, by the way, that same word was used in ancient history to describe wild horses that had been tamed and broken in. The wild horse was not, not weak now. He was still a wild horse. He was still strong as a horse, but he was under the control of his master. Gentleness is strength under control. It's being under the control of the Holy Spirit. A gentle Christian will be under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it should be a given that God's people are this way. Matthew tells us that Jesus was lowly and gentle in heart. Again, the Savior being this way. That doesn't mean he never took a stand against evil. It doesn't mean he was mealy-mouthed about everything. He did take a stand. Did he not blast the Pharisees for their hypocrisy again and again? He did. He chased the money changers out of the temple because they were defiling it. He was 
He took a stand, always. But Jesus was always under control of what he did, and he never sinned. And gentleness is the deliberate exercise of self-control. Again, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Look up Galatians chapter 5. It's choosing to act in a kind manner instead of retaliating against someone else, even though you may have the right to. You may feel like you have the right to. You don't react. You don't retaliate. William Barclay said this, The man who is gentle is the man or the woman who is gentle is the man or woman who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Don't blow up because somebody got you upset. You're angry because something bad is taking place to hurt somebody. A gentle Christian, when he's wronged by someone, he doesn't seek revenge for himself. But when he sees someone else wrong, he addresses that issue, see? He's a gentle person in that sense. So the unity of the church is strengthened by humility. It's strengthened by gentleness. It must be so in a church. And the third attitude promoting unity is patience. Verse 2 again. You notice that these, we went through Colossians, you saw these same virtues in Colossians. It's kind of a twin letter in a sense. With patience. Patience is long-suffering. It is suffering long, as we've said before, with people who aggravate you. There are people who aggravate us in this world, right? They get on our nerves, and we have to put up with them for a long period of time. It has to do with endurance. As I've said before, this term is used of God himself. God is patient. It says in 2 Peter 3.15 that we're to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience of our Lord. The Lord is patient. He's always been patient. It's got to do with God delaying his wrath. I mean, God could unleash his wrath at any time, but because he's patient and long-suffering with those of us who are people who are rebellion against him, he's, he delays his wrath. And, he all, and, and he's always been patient this way. Even when he destroyed the earth, he waited 120 years before he did it, giving man a chance again. He's extremely patient with his creation. And for the believer, this idea of patience is endurance is not, does not abandon hope. You know, when you're working with someone, maybe discipling a new believer or, or uh, uh, working with anyone who uh, has come to know Christ recently and you, and, you're, and you somehow expect to see some tremendous results overnight, maybe. You know, we need to exercise patience with people. People don't, aren't going to grow according to the rate, spiritually according to the rate that we have set for them, a standard we've set for them. Let them let, be patient with them. Allow them to grow. Allow for shortcomings in others. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter whether new believers or old believers. Allow, it's better to endure wrong than to fly off the handle with people. When you're dealing with people, Mike and I talked about this week, and everything is not black and white. Everything is not an easy issue. There's so many complexities that are going on that you don't even think about that are in their life from the from past, from the present. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of things. We need to endure with people that are struggling with issues. Be patient with them. Patient with each other in the church. All of us need to be patient with each other in order to maintain unity. That's a key ingredient in a unified church. Patience, long-suffering. The fourth unselfish attitude we need to display in the church is showing tolerance, he says in verse 2. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Forbearance is what tolerance is. It's bearing up with, one's, uh, with other, people, other people's weaknesses. Bearing up with their failures in the midst of tensions and conflicts, putting up with all this stuff. 
It means we tolerate the faults of people, the idiosyncrasies of people, knowing that we have our own faults. You've got to keep that in mind, right? None, of, none among us that don't, don't have faults or even several or in sins. And keeping in mind that we're all different. All of us are different. We all have faults. We all have shortcomings. We're all peculiar in some way, as I've said before. We all come from a different background. Understand that. We all have our own likes and dislikes. We all have a certain way of going about our business. We all have different personalities. All these things come together into a church. How in the world do you get that to work? How do you get that to work? That's a tough situation. The list of differences among us never ends. So how do we get along with each other? How are we unified as a church? We show tolerance. We show tolerance for each other in love. A.T. Robertson, the, the famous Greek scholar from days gone by, said he translated this verse this way. <clears throat> I may have said this before. But he says, hold yourselves back from one another. That's how he translated that verse. Hold yourselves back from one another. Sometimes we have to do that because maybe we're at odds with each other. Sometimes we just got to say, I'm going to hold myself back and be tolerant. Being tolerant of the preferences of other people. doesn't mean we tolerate sin in our church. I'm not saying that. That we just let it go on and on and on. But we understand that people are growing. People are, they're, as I said, as, as, as I've said before, and as Mike and I have talked about recently, in, all, in a church there are all kinds of people. There are new believers. There are weak believers. There are strong believers. There are believers on the rise. There are believers sometimes on the decline. All kinds of stuff is going on. Believers in the trouble in their life at this time, maybe not another time. So we're to show tolerance for each other in love. In love. This kind of love seeks the highest good of another person. It's the basis of a mutual forbearance, love is. And if we're not showing tolerance for others, then we're not exercising the love of God. That's the bottom line there. So these are the attitudes we're to manifest. Humility gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for each other. Did you notice that these are all similar? These terms, they overlap? I think the Holy Spirit's trying to drill into our heads. Hey, be this way in order to have a unified church. I want you to be this way, to have these attitudes, to have a unified church. This is only possible as the Holy Spirit works in us. All these things are fruit of the Spirit, as Galatians 5 talks about. So we've seen two ways in which we can obey Paul's exhortation in unity. We must be true to our calling, number one. Number two, we must display unselfish attitudes. And then thirdly, third and finally, we must work hard at unity. We must work hard at unity. Verse three, being diligent. Notice these words, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The, words, the phrase being diligent can be translated, make every effort. Make every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. A church is not, does not automatically, it's not, on, uh, it's not on automatic pilot, the church isn't. Automatically maintaining unity at all times, or that's not doing nothing at all. There must be effort involved. That's what this verse is saying. There must be work involved. We must be diligent about it. We must be zealous to maintain the unity. He talks about preserving the unity. Interesting word, preserving. It means to keep what is already in existence. To keep something going that is already in existence. It's not that we establish something new, but we maintain that which is already in our possession. See, the Holy Spirit has provided unity for us in the church. He presents to us a unified church. 
And then he says to us, now I want you to maintain that unity. The Spirit of God creates a unified church, he says in effect, but he wants us to maintain that unity. Now, you might ask the question, why does God want us to maintain something that he started? Why does he want us to maintain something he started, he says? Well, if you think about it, God has given us many responsibilities. God has saved us by how? By our works? No, he saved us by his grace and his grace alone. But what does he tell us to do? He tells us to put off sins and to, and to put, on righteous, put on things that are godly and righteous, deeds, uh, those kind of deeds. Of course, we know that we do this, in this through the Spirit, right? But he tells us to do this. We are commanded to evangelize people. We're to preach the gospel to people, even though it's God, God is the one who saves people. But we're given the task of evangelization. We're commanded to preach the word of God, but God is the one who works in the human heart. So both are always going on. And so he says here, keep the unity of the church even though the Spirit established it in the first place. So we have this serious task we're given to maintain the unity of the church. It's our business to go about this, to rely upon the grace of God as we work hard at this business. And we're to do this in the bond of peace, he says. That should be our concern, peace in our church. Peace in our church should be our concern. Now, this is never at the expense of doctrine, of course. If someone comes in and preaches false doctrine and heresy, and, and, uh, or as Acts 20 says, if someone rises up among you and preaches false doctrine and draws away disciples after them, any of us that would do that, that we wouldn't want that at all. We wouldn't tolerate it in our church. We couldn't tolerate the preaching of false doctrine. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Christ is the one who has made this peace possible. It says in Ephesians 2.14, Christ is our peace. We're called upon to live in peace with one another. Even in Paul's prayer in Timothy, he says, pray that uh, we'll live peacefully in the country so we can do the work of God. In effect, is what he says. He prays for that peace. And he says to maintain the peace here. Paul said in Romans 12.18, I love this verse, Romans 12.18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, he says, be at peace with all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, he puts it on us, be at peace with all men. And I think that all of us here know this is our responsibility. It depends upon us as we depend upon God to do this. Let me ask you this. Have you allowed some petty difference to come between you and another believer in our church? Have you allowed some petty difference to come between you and another believer? Is there some preference issue that you're being stubborn over to the detriment of another believer because you want your way and he wants his way and it's a struggle? You know, it reminds me of Romans 14. Paul's talking about food preferences. One man eats vegetables, another eats meat. And Paul says this great line in Romans 14. He says, do not destroy with food Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. How absurd that would be over food. We're going to have a big argument. We don't want to destroy the church because of our preferences, because of something that we hold to that's not even a biblical doctrine. Are we doing everything we can to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is the question. If we do that, we will enjoy unity in our church. And I'm telling you again, as we, get, as, we, as we go on here, as the Grace Bible Church of Tampa, 
There's going to be the tendency to have disunity in the church. We must work hard at it. And so the message of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, all the way through verse 16, is very straightforward. Nobody here should miss it. Paul, who is, is, is a man who loved the church of God, who suffered for the church, who, who, who gave his life for the church, and, and uh, exhorted the church, wrote epistles to the church, he seeks unity in that same church. He says that God has called us to salvation. He's called us to be the part, a part of his church. And he asks of, of us that our lifestyle reflect that calling. We must be true to our calling, in other words. He also asks that we have the proper attitudes, Attitudes that are the fruit of the Spirit. Attitudes that are unselfish. And finally, he says, we must do our best to maintain the unity of the Spirit that God has already provided. Jesus said in in Mark 3, he said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. It's going to crumble. Divided house is going to crumble. It's often been said If America is destroyed, it will be destroyed from within. And that's very true. And I think the same thing can be said of a church. If a church is destroyed, it will be destroyed from within. The Bible says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Church is never going to be destroyed from the outside. Paul tried to destroy the church before he became a Saul, then, just before he was a Christian, tried to destroy the church. That was his goal, to literally destroy it. But God didn't allow it. But even though the church can't be destroyed from without, what damage, what tremendous damage can be caused from within the church to harm and, to, and to, to, to affect it and to even bring it to a split? The last thing we would ever want. So we must never allow petty, petty differences of no consequence whatsoever to divide us. We must never allow personality differences to divide us. We must never allow our opinions to divide us. Romans 15 again, with one mind and one mouth glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not allow undercurrents, undercurrents of disharmony to widen and deepen in our church and to carry on and get to the point to where you have this division in the church. But rather we must maintain or, or, Paul's, or must, must follow Paul's exhortation to maintain unity in the church. So tonight, as we prepare to face another week, Another week at work, another week in the world. Let's pray that the Lord will help us always be, and especially as we grow bigger and have more people, pray that we will always be a unified church that will glorify our Lord. Let's pray for that right now. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. We thank you for uh, Christ who died for the church, who loved loved the church and gave himself for it. We thank you for men like Paul who loved the church and and worked on its behalf, and promoted its unity, and preached for its unity. We pray tonight for the Grace Bible Church of Tampa. We pray for our church, that we will love each other, that we will have attitudes that will be honoring to you toward each other, that we will continue to build the unity of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that we'll go not be a church that will be divided, but a church that will be united in serving you, and preaching the gospel, and edifying the saints here, and doing the work of God in this community. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.